I'm back. Yes. But, the, but you know, the great thing is the word is not back. The word has always been here. And I love that because our church so values not... Is that, is that normal? Is this how it's going to be? Oh, I'm too close? All right. I love that our church, we don't value a man or a voice, but God's voice. And it can come through multiple different voices, different personalities. And so I know that you have been faithfully served during my three-month sabbatical. And um, during my sabbatical, I'm going to get into a lot more of what God was teaching me and spoke to me and worked in me. And thank you so much for that. Because you guys know how often I lose my voice. So since I haven't preached in three months, there's a 50% chance of me losing my voice today. Um, and maybe a 50% chance for me going for three hours. Um, but um, one of the things that I did is spend time reading and meditating on passages that talked about what it means to be a pastor, a faithful shepherd. And one of the things that are reminded by Jesus' words to Peter after Peter fell, and he was restoring him back, not only to himself, but to ministry, he says, Peter, feed my sheep. And I just remember that one of the great callings of mine as a pastor is to feed you God's word and teach you how to feed yourself. So I'm really excited about this. And, and as I got excited to come back and preach, I was like, I wonder what passage I'm going to be preaching. So I look on our, our planning center, and it's Luke 16. I'm like, oh, Luke 16, huh? I wonder what that is. And I open it up, and I read this passage. I'm like, oh, no, Luke 16. It's because if you've ever read this passage before, Jesus preaches about shares about 20 parables in his ministry, and this is perhaps the most controversial, misunderstood, challenging parable uh, of his ministry. So that's our task this morning, is to go into the word and see what God has for us. But not to my surprise, there was great treasure as I got to labor over this text, and I'm excited to go deep with you to see this. But it's going to take some work. It's not easy. There are some things, because Most notably, if you read this passage quickly, you may walk away with the impression that Jesus is encouraging us to basically swindle other people (laughs) with clever, shrewd ways. So you're like, huh, that does not fit my understanding of what Jesus, especially in light of how much the Gospel Luke emphasizes how Jesus talks about taking care of the poor and the marginalized, the broken, especially with money and many other things. And so it doesn't sit right. But that's the joy of being able to go through God's word verse by verse is it forces us to relook at passages that we would conveniently like to sweep under the rug or ignore in our Bible reading plans and and, and maybe one day we'll get it in heaven. But we get to get it now, God willing. So I'm excited about it. So what we're we're seeing, let me me paint some context, is that we're looking into this parable um, in light of a macro context. Remember, halfway into the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is turning his face towards Jerusalem. He's set. And as he's going towards Jerusalem to his place of execution and torment for our sins, he is teaching his followers what it looks like to follow him on that exact path. What does it look like to be faithful in this age if you want to truly follow me? And one of the major themes that comes up over and over again, some have estimated 25% of Jesus' teachings are surrounded around money. And I know the moment I talk about money in church, everyone's like, oh, he's going to do it. He's going to go there. Don't do it, Sam. Well, I got to do it because the Bible goes there. In fact, Jesus goes there regularly. So if you're like, oh, man, Sam, I know you're just like, you know, you know, if you're a pastor, maybe you're trying to work us to get more money for yourself. Listen, listen, this, this, this is 
this is what God cares so deeply about our money because it, it is so deep, deeply connected to our heart. And God cares about your heart. And so I have to go there and talk about money. And if you look at chapter 16, there's a slide. There's going to be a theme that's going to be coming up reoccurringly in chapter 16 that we're going to be going over the next few weeks. We're going to take a little break next week to talk about divorce and remarriage. Another great, fun topic uh, that will be covered by Ross. But you can see here, there was a certain rich man. In the verse 14, in response to this parable and this teaching from Jesus, the Pharisees who are lovers of money. In verse 19, there was a certain rich man. So you can see that this is a theme that is all throughout chapter 16. And the overarching theme that we're going to see, and that you see throughout all Gospels, is that how you manage God's money in the present is a direct connection to your eternal future. Okay? So what you do with God's money in the present is a direct connection to what's going to happen in the future. Okay, so let's see what God has to emphasize about money and possessions and eternity right now this week. So, verse 1. Here's the setting of the parable of the self-devoted servant. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. Now, real quick, manager, a lot of us have had managers. Maybe you're a manager at your work. Maybe a better word for, for our context because manager is so connected to lots of different things that this passage doesn't mean is steward, a steward. In, that, in other words, somebody who's charged with management over an estate or over affairs that they do not own themselves, but they are working hard to do whatever they can with all of their being to look out for the best interests of the master. So you could be a steward of a castle. So you don't own the castle. The king or the queen owns the castle, but you're the steward of the castle. You manage the affairs, make sure everything is going well and for the good at will of the owner. So this is what is going on. There's a rich man who had a steward or manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. Wasting his possessions. What is interesting is this term wasting his possessions in the Greek is the same line as the parable of the prodigal son. The son went to a far country and wasted or squandered the father's inheritance. And in this passage, you have a manager or a steward squandering the possessions of his master. They're connected. So don't read chapter 16 without reading chapter 15. So in chapter 15, we're seeing the heart of the father emphasized. And the generosity, the scandalous unfathomable grace of the Father. And then now in chapter 16, we're now emphasizing and seeing a different facet of God as a Lord, as a master. Remember, we cannot relate with God in only one way. And scripture gives us a plethora of different ways we relate to God. He's also a lover. He's also a servant. And if you emphasize one and neglect the other, you're going to have a very lopsided, anemic Christianity. So last week we see the heart of the Father. This week we see God as a master. So what we see is this steward is actually a bad steward. He's wasting his owner's possessions. So look at verse 2. So the master called him and said to him, called the steward and said, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be my steward or manager. So not surprising, not so surprisingly, he fires him, 
But what is more surprising is that he says, all right, you screwed up all my books and my management. Now you go audit them and come back and tell me what you did all wrong. Which gives this steward some time. And he needs time. Because if you were a steward, you lived on the estates, you ate with ate there it was your livelihood it was everything it wasn't like you just went home and came back this was this is your everything so he's losing everything and not only is he losing everything word is going to spread that he's a lousy manager and it's going to ruin his reputation so his future looks terrible and he knows this but the owner unwisely gave him time time to come up with a brilliant plan to secure this guy's present future so look at this manager's plan verse three and four and the manager said to himself what shall i do since my master is taking the management away from me i'm not strong enough to dig and i'm ashamed to beg i've decided what to do so that when i'm removed from management people may receive me into their houses so when an honor shame society there is a big pressure in many ways like ours i scratch your back you scratch mine you don't do anything for anybody without expecting something in return. So he's going to try to find a way to put all of his master's debtors in his debt so that when he's fired, he's going to have a home to stay in. He's going to have a table he's welcome to. He's going to put them in his favor by doing something pretty scandalous and sketchy. So in verse 5 through 7, let me paraphrase. He, and it's on your screen or in your Bible if you want to look. He summons all of his master's debtors one by one. And there's probably more than just these two. And he says, hey, come, uh, how much do you owe my master? And the first says, I owe 100 jugs of olive oil. And he says, great, write down 50, quickly. <laughs> and people are like, you don't have to say it twice, 50, boom. And because he's still technically the steward, he has legal power for these contracts. So what he's doing right here will be legally binding. It's not like he just says it and then the master will have to one day honor it. It's legally binding. Write it down. Boom, done. Hey, next person, you, you, come here. How much do you owe? Well, I owe 100 bushels of wheat. Well, 20% discount, write down 80. Yes, amen, I want that, right? So he does this for on and on he goes, who knows how many. And then word gets back to the master. Now, let me, let me clarify something. The word quickly is used. And so I... I'm anticipating that this is something sketchy he's doing. Some commentators and scholars think that this debtor is kind of like pulling a Ocean's Eleven or Robin Hood, his master. Like his master's actually bad and charging exorbitant amounts of interest, and he's just taking off the interest he shouldn't be doing according to Torah. But, but I think with this word quickly, and that later Jesus calls him dishonest, or the word is um, unrighteous, I think what he's doing is straight up just messed up. It's interesting. I love how one scholar put it. When accused of wasting his master's goods, he tries to salvage his future by squandering more of his master's goods, which is going to be interesting to keep in mind because this is going to be connected when we talk about what you're faithful with little, you'll be faithful with much or vice versa as well. Now, let's look at something because things are about to get really weird. Look at verse 8 with me. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. What? <laughs> for the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Okay, so the immediate 
question, if you're paying attention, would be, why is the steward asking, saying such a thing? Why, sorry, why is the master commending him? Hey, you squandered my possessions, and you did it again even worse. I commend you. That, that doesn't make sense, right? So there, there's maybe two most common interpretations and uh, solutions to what's going on. The first one, and this is, to be honest, the most common one, and if you have a New Living Translation, it will just straight up show it. It's kind of like this. The master is a son of the world, like the steward is. Son of the world, being son of, son of the evil one, son uh, of the age. It's all about what the, the, the spirit of the age is all about. And as being a son of the world, he, represent, he recognizes game when he sees it. He, he tips off his hat. He's like, man, you got me. Well done. You're like, I got to tip my hat. You got me good. You got me good. And we've seen that in our culture where someone who is wicked can tip their hat off to someone who's even more clever in their wickedness and say, man, I, you know, I, re- I recognize that. I respect that. that. That's possible. But the reason why I don't think it's probable is because afterwards he says, for the sons of the world are more true than the sons of light. And, and that just doesn't make sense to me that the master would be so spiritually discerning that he would be bringing this principle of thinking about that. So, so I think, and, and it's okay, the, the, the main meaning of, the, of this passage doesn't change if I'm wrong in this. I think that the master here who's commending him is Jesus. And the reason why I say that, and I don't want to foray into Greek too much, but this, this word here is ha kurios, okay? And whenever that, that, that proper name, the Lord, is used in Luke, it's most, most often it's Jesus, so I think Jesus is interrupting this parable and saying he commends this shrewd, conniving, evil servant, steward. Now, that gives us a bigger problem, right? What's that bigger problem? Why is Jesus commending this guy, this wicked, foolish guy? Okay. First of all, what does Jesus call him? If you look at your text, he calls him dishonest. The actual Greek is unrighteous. Okay, so let, let it be clear. Jesus is not commending this man's character. He's not saying, man, this guy is really great at being wicked, right? He's not commending his character. So get out of your mind if you want to take this text and, and, and twist it so that you could get out of your taxes. You're saying, I'm just being biblical, Sam, you know? You know, there is a loophole in the tax system, and I found it, and glory to be God, the Holy Spirit led me there, right? Like, get this out of your mind that this passage is encouraging you to find ways to fleece other people, right? What is Jesus doing here? He is commending this man's shrewdness, but, but what, what is he being shrewd about? Well, first of all, shrewd is not a word we usually use in our language, right? Shrewd is, is this making sensible and wise judgments, usually in context of finances. So what is Jesus commending exactly? Jesus is taking a negative story that he's clearly portraying as negative and pulling something positive out of it. He is not, he's not commending the steward's actions, but the cleverness of the actions. So what I mean by that is, is that the dishonest servant sized up his situation, saw that his future was dim, it looked terrible, and used all of his energy and his talents and his time to figure out a way to secure his present future. 
So what Jesus is not saying, do the same things he did, but he's saying, have that kind of attitude where you can see a situation, size it up, and use all of your energies to ensure security. Now, you're not going to understand what that means until we keep going on. So keep that earmarked in your head, and then we're going to keep going on. There's a, there's a dedication, or better put, the, the, the language that's going to be used later on is a devotion. There's a devotion that is worthy of imitation. Now, this man is devoted to himself, and he is devoted to this age. And Jesus is going to elevate that devotion to something far greater. Let's keep going. Verse 9. And I tell you, <laughs> this, is, this is fun. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, this, this verse, even more than the last verse, is one where people are like, I don't even know where to go. I don't, I, don't, I don't even know what's going on here. This must be, I don't know, okay? So more questions. What is unrighteous wealth? Who are these friends? What are these eternal dwellings? <clears throat> first of all, whenever you try to discern what a word is, the first place you look is not a dictionary. It's the context especially the immediate context. What does unrighteous wealth mean? Does unrighteous wealth mean here wealth attained through sketchy, illegal means? Well, look at how Jesus uses the same word in verse 11, if you can look in your Bibles. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? So in context, especially with language like sons of this world and language like generation you're going to see later on, I think unrighteous wealth in this context is speaking about just wealth from this world. So every one of us has unrighteous wealth. Now we can use that unrighteous wealth righteously or unrighteously, but unrighteous wealth is basically means, money, possessions of this age. So it's morally neutral in this context. But that anything morally neutral can be corrupted. So again, this is very, very important as a key Bible study tip. Whenever you're reading the Bible and you're like, what does this word mean? Look at the surrounding context first. And then further out. And then further out. And then finally maybe look at a Bible dictionary. Because that word unrighteous in another context could mean straight up doing things illegally financially. But in this context, it's just neutral. Okay? Hopefully that's helped. So unrighteous wealth. Now, what is this term, make friends for yourself? This is a little bit trickier. And to be honest, for me to be able to give you a good answer takes a lot of, of, a lot of other passages to piece together. And when I had that initially, the sermon went super long. So I cut that. So I'm just going to basically kind of tell you where I land because of the word. And I could be wrong. But, but I think that making your friends for yourself is, is speaking when you consider the context of Luke about other believers or pre-believers, soon-to-be believers, especially the poor, caring for them in such a way that one day when you are in heaven and eternity, they will, will welcome you as a, like a procession, okay? I know that's a lot right there, and I, I wish I could give you more passages to tell you why I believe that there's even uh, one of the words here, received, is, is, is in a passive, which is going to be connected to this idea of receiving you into their home, and, and because we know that nobody actually has their own eternal home, but we share uh, the eternal home of our Father, that, that we're the, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and the angels, and all believers before that you bless and you touch with your finances will one day welcome you with joy in heaven. 
how you serve them with your time, your talents, your energies. That, that's what I think this passage is going. Now, I think it's important for me to highlight this one phrase in verse 9. So when it fails. Can you just say that with me? So when it fails. I think all of us need to be reminded that regularly. So when it fails. Jesus straight up is saying, hey, use this temporary money because it's going to fail so that you can have eternal money. I, I, love, I love this illustration by Randy Alcorn. I cut this out of my manuscript, but I just put it back in right now. Um, imagine you are in the South during the Civil War, and the Civil War just is about to end. And you got a bunch of Confederate money. And you know that just within a few days or months, that Confederate money is going to be what? Worthless. Nothing. What will you do if you're wise, if you're discerning of the times, discerning of the age of what's going on? You would turn that over to as, as many green union, union, whatever they call it, union backs or whatever, as you can. Because you know that this money that you have in this temporary age in the South is going to be worthless in a, just a second. You're going to do everything you can with all your being to ensure that you're going to be providing for your future by making sure you have what the government will have in the future. Like Bitcoin. Just kidding. Um, but are you tracking? You tracking what I'm saying? It's the same thing here. Jesus is telling, hey, use wealth that will go. It will go. I am promising you that it will be worthless one day. You cannot take it with you. But as Randy Alcorn loves to say, but you can send it ahead. Can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. So let me, let me piece verse 9 together. So I believe Jesus is shrewdly is calling his followers to shrewdly use their wealth, the wealth of this current age, that will fail, again, to generously bless and serve others, knowing full well that this, those riches are temporary, so that one day in eternity there will be a procession of welcome with God, the angels, and all the different believers that you touched, whether you knew it or not, with your time, your talents, your resources. I, I love the fact that every once in a while, I'll hear a testimony of how something that I did that I don't even remember or I barely remember touched so many people. A gift I gave, a ministry I supported. And it's going to be such a joyous day when we get to be together finally with no sin, with Jesus in the center. And we get to, Jesus can just show us how, hey, you remember you did this one thing that you didn't even know? You forgot about? You remember you did this one thing that was so hard and you didn't want to do it, but you did it? Look at how many how, how much I multiply that. And that can be awesome. There are many of you here who have been generous. And maybe you thought, man, is my generosity doing anything? It is doing something. And sometimes God will give us, give us a little glimpse to see, hey, this is what I'm doing with your work and your, 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 your money or whatever it is. But there's going to be so, so much more one day when we see it. And, and I just can imagine that day, someone coming up to me, Sam, you remember that one time when you were 18, you gave that one gift. As a result, I became a Christian. This is going to be so great. I can't wait for that. I'm, I'm eager for that, for all of us to have more and more of that. Treasure in heaven that can't be taken, where neither moth nor rust can destroy, nor thieves break in and steal. I want that for you. And if I'm a good pastor, I'm going to be jealous for you to have as much treasure as you can have in heaven. And I would be the most unloving pastor if my passion was to help you get the most treasure on earth that will go away, that will fail. 
As 1 Timothy says, the uncertainty of riches. Let the rich not put their hope in the uncertainty of riches, but be rich in good deeds. That's my passion for you because I, I, I care about your happiness, but I care even more about your eternal happiness. And even as a husband and as a father, my wife and I say regularly, I want to, we want to give our kids the world, don't you? If you're a parent, you just want to give them everything. Even if it's going to spoil them, you just want to just, yeah, yeah, let me just give you that. And we have to hold back because we have to set our kids, even their heart's trajectory upon eternity. Okay, that was not in the manuscript. Now, looking at eight and nine together, we have two kinds of people that Jesus classifies, the children of the world and the children of light. Everybody in this room right now is either one of those categories. There is no third category. There's no third party. You're either children of light or children of the world. Another passage, children of darkness, is another category. The shrewd manager seized up his situation and set his face to do whatever he needed to ensure the maximum joy and fruit and peace in his future. So Jesus is highlighting this attitude in saying, That God's people ought to be just as passionate and shrewd in securing their eternal future as this shrewd manager did for his temporary future. Are are you tracking with me? That's the whole point. That's the negative, this negative, sad, wicked parable. That's the, the positive. You ought to be even more passionate and more dedicated, more devoted, more shrewd as the, the sons of the world are in securing their momentary future, but for us, our eternal future. Now think about the different areas of your life. Are, are there any areas of your life that you put more devotion, more shrewdness, more energy into than your devotion towards Christ and his purposes? Some of you here, I can talk to you about your jobs or your favorite hobbies or your favorite sports teams, and I am amazed at how brilliant, how fluent, how knowledgeable you are in these things. You can blow me away at the complexities of your work, the challenges there, and how you overcome them. And yet some of you are so good at your work and so knowledgeable about that sports team or this, thing, this talent or that hobby, but you don't know your Bible. You have more energy, more attention, more devotion to these other things like politics or or some sort of hobby that's exciting than you do Christ. And this challenges me greatly for many of you know, and this is just even embarrassing to say out loud, and that's the power of verbalizing things, is that last year I got really excited about golf. (laughs) I forsook my first love of basketball and start playing golf, which is something I never thought I would do. And I, yeah, yeah, okay. And I put a lot of time and energy and money into improving my game this last year and a half. So the question should be sincerely asked, Sam, have you been more devoted to golf than you have been to Jesus? And for you, it's, it, it may not be golf. For you, it may be your family or for you, and that's a good thing, Remember, we can take good things and make them ultimate things. We can make created things and make them idols. Or maybe it's your job. Or maybe it's even ministry. Maybe it's a girlfriend or a boyfriend. Have you made them ultimate things? These are uncomfortable questions to ask, but they are questions we must ask. 
We must ask honestly. We must ask our friends and those close to us, is this true of me? And so for me, with golf, it's an embarrassing question to, to ask myself, but because the reality is it's a mixed bag. There's days and moments where my devotion is solely and number one on Christ, and I want him more than anything or anyone. And there are days where I want to ignore him, and I use golf as an avenue to distract myself from the pain in my heart, the, the, the things that I feel that are broken in my heart, and I'm avoiding God through golf. So it's a day-to-day repentance process. God, what am I choosing right now? Why am I doing this right now? Am I avoiding you through this or am I worshiping you through this? These are difficult questions. We're not fundamentalists just saying anything fun or anything created that could be idolatrous because you can make anything an idol. We can't escape it all, but you can redirect it all. And that takes a lot of hard, careful work. And too many people just resign to either cutting everything off or just saying, you know, I don't know. I trust God. He's good. He's got me. For me, this last season, it's been golf. In other seasons, it was my job. It was a relationship I was head over heels over, or I was making money doing stock market stuff or other different things I was trying to do, which leads me to tra- transition to the second half of this passage. Jesus' focus in one of the primary indicators of our devotion, both the level of our devotion and the direction of our devotion, is what we do with money. So look at verse 10 faithfulness in the use of money verse 10 one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much we see this immediately within the context of the parable you look at the dishonest steward what he did with little or what he did with a lot he squandered and in going out he did even worse And we've all seen this in our lives and seen this in the workplace. What you do with little is the indicator of what you do with a lot. We often fall into the lie that, you know what, what I have right now, I'm just, it's just mundane and boring and I'm too good for this. I'm better than this. If I have more, then I'll be generous. Or if I have a better position, then I will be studious or excellent. One day I will. The sluggard always says one day. That day I will, but right now I have reasons why I'm not. And I, and I tell you, if you're not studious in your position as a student right now or your position as a, 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 a mother of kids, if you're not excellent in doing it unto the Lord with what you have, God cannot entrust you with more. In fact, if he entrusts you more, that is a judgment on you. That's a death sentence for your soul. If you are unfaithful with little financially, some of you say, well, you know, one day when I have more money, then I will be generous. But right now, I'm too poor. I'm under the poverty category. You're wrong. You will not be more generous. You'll be more greedy. What you do with little shows what you do with a lot. That is a foundational principle. And that's one of the principles that we see regularly in the church. Those who, to be honest, those who are most faithful in our church most fruitful are the most biggest givers. Those who have the most issues at our church, who complain the most, who have it, don't give at all or never give or rarely give. And I'm not saying that to shame you, but to saying that there is a inseparable connection between the way you handle your money and your heart before God. 
And it, and it spiderwebs to everything. It's not like something that you can just put in a corner and say, yeah, 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 that finance issue, that's, that's something that I just need to work on and I need to grow in one day. But all these other areas are good. No, no, no. This will infect all of this. So if you got that and you're giving it to the Lord, it will infect for the good. And if you got it down poorly, it will infect for the ill. It cannot be segmented into one area of your heart, both good or for ill. Look at verse 11. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you true riches? This is the key here, friends. The goal is true riches. I've heard preachers, and I myself in the past have taken this passage to say, Sam, if you want more in your life, you better be faithful with what you got so you get more. But what is that doing as the main goal? To get more. And that's the wrong heart. Because what does he say right here? Verse 12. And if you have not been faithful, in which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Well, what's the whole point here? Is that you were a steward. It's not yours. The goal is not to get more for yourself. The, more, the goal is to get more for Christ. Because if you're a steward, your whole life's purpose is to seek the good and the welfare of your master, not your own self. And because he's a good master, he'll make sure you're taken care of. He'll get, he'll get you. He'll take care of you. But we have a reverse. We try to take care of ourselves and then give the crumbs to the master. Instead of trust, the master will take care of us and do whatever it can for the furtherance of his purposes, his will, his agenda, and then know that in, 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 in light of that, as an overflow of that, all of our needs will be taken care of. He's promised that. So that's just a simple question to ask ourselves. Are you a steward today? Are you a steward? Not just your finances, but everything. Are you a steward? Let's look at our final verse because this elevates to a whole new level and it shows that this is this is not just about money management it's about worship verse 13 no one no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve god and money oh my goodness do you see this what are the the words that connect together hate and despise Love and devoted. They're coupled together. And what Jesus does is he says an either or here. He doesn't give a third, third category. It's either you love me or you hate me. You're devoted to me or you despise me. And very specifically, he highlights money. He doesn't say you should not serve God in money or it is a challenging thing, thing to serve God in money. He says you cannot serve God in money. He's using servant slavery language here. In that time, if you were a slave of one family, you can't be a slave of another family. You belong to one household. Similarly, you belong to only one household. You can either serve him with all of your heart, all your being. You can be devoted and love him. Or the opposite is you hate and despise him. Now, as I was reading this this week and studying and meditating, I was saying, there's got to be a third option, right? See, because what it does is it elevates our love of idols to a whole new level and we got to change our thinking when we choose these idols it's not just a bad choice it's a rejection of the best choice when we choose these other things or people over god we're we're in fact according to this passage hating and despising him you may say to me well sam i don't i don't feel like i'm hating or despising god but listen we got to submit to what god's saying is actually happening in the heavenlies see your struggle to read your Bible and spend time and give your heart to him every day, it's not a discipline issue. It's a devotion issue. 
The fact that you struggle with balancing your checkbook and giving generously and you're always in debt, you're always buying the next thing for yourself and you're not generous is not about discipline or self-control. Those are realities. But the core issue is devotion. Your heart isn't devoted as it ought to be. And for me, I have put myself in a terrible bad cycle when it comes to my personal devotions with the Lord over the years, especially as a pastor saying, you know, guys, brother, I, I, need, to, I need to wake up earlier. I just need to wake up early. My, my wife and I, Joanna and I are just spending too much time watching stuff at night, and we just stay up. I need to wake up early. It's, and I make it a discipline thing. And the reason why I haven't been able to realign my heart and have a, a flourishing devotional life is because I made it about discipline instead of about repentance and worship and devotion. The reason why I don't spend time with God is because I don't love God that much. Stop couching it in terms of, of discipline or you're busy. All of us are busy. Nobody's not busy. It's because we're not, we don't love him as much as we, realize, as much as we think we love him. And the moment you start realizing that and confessing that, then that's when you can actually have power from the Holy Spirit to change. And that's when the discipline comes. We think, oh, maybe one day I'll be devoted because I'm so disciplined. No, 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 no. Because you're devoted, the discipline flows. And, and yes, it's a cycle. They, they feed each other. It's a worship issue. So instead of saying stuff like, you know, I've, just, I've been struggling with lust lately. No, you've been struggling with worship lately. You've been struggling with devotion lately. We've got to recouch these terms that we use like struggle and challenge or distracted and recouch them in terms that are biblical like worship. I've been too focused on my work instead of my family. No, you've been too devoted to your work. Use the, work de- use the word devoted because then it gets at the heart. And only until you get the heart, then you can get the change. The fact that some of you are not generous to your home church is a worship issue, period. And the fact that some of you have been very generous to your home church, it's a worship issue. The fact that the government, when the government has been sending us all these dang stimulus checks over the last couple of years, my heart's mind mainly have been going to what can I now do with that or what can I now buy with that is a worship issue with my heart. It's my heart that needs changing. It's not a discipline or money management. I don't need more Dave Ramsey, even though Dave Ramsey would help me. I need a worship. I need a heart realignment. Get the tools like Dave Ramsey or whatever you want to use but make sure the heart is aligned first. So how do you grow in your devotion? Landing the plane soon. How do you grow in your devotion? Because if you're like me, some of you are feeling convicted over your divided allegiance and devotion. Every one of us could grow in our devotion and love. Okay, so this is not a shame fest because every one of us is in that boat. I'm in that boat. And God is gracious and patient. We're going to get that in in a second. But how do you grow? First, you confess and repent, like I said. You have to, Claire, you have to highlight the root heart issue first. Not the discipline or the lack of calendars or sauna or whatever you need. It's your heart issue. Give it to him. Say, God, I've been more devoted to my self-image. I've been more devoted to my vacations, or I've been more devoted to my work, or I've been more devoted to my kids, or whatever it is. You name it. Anything can be turned into an idol. We're really good at it, guys. And then once you confess it, you either turn from it, if it's straight up unbiblical and sinful, or if it's something good that you corrupted, that you realign your heart with the help of community and the word and prayer. Okay? So some, you have to literally walk away because it's straight up sinful. and you got to run and flee. And some of it, if it's a good gift that you just have made something ultimate, you have to realign. Number two, take up your role again as a steward. Take up your role again as a steward. You are a steward. Remember, he is your master. 
He's, he is your friend, but he is your master. Your wallet is his. So a quick, simple question is, are your finances and possessions devoted to God right now? And I know the temptation for all of us is just, yeah, of course, we just assume it. But if you have not recently devoted them to God, then may I suggest it's a high likelihood that they've slipped, they've drifted. Because everything in our world, the three great enemies of our soul, Satan, the world, flesh, constantly attack money, possessions, because it's, they know, the enemy knows it's such a direct line to our worship, a direct line to our hearts. So if you don't regularly have checkups where you're realigning your heart with the kingdom's agenda, with God's agenda, then I, I will promise you your heart has drifted. And can I just be honest with you? My heart has drifted. So I need to look at my budget again. This is something you got to do regularly. Number three, bring community into it. Bring community into it. Open up your finance to other trusted and godly people. One of the times that I just grew in so much respect for Dale Gruber, who's now a pastor, is when he wasn't a pastor, and he showed me his finances, and he said, he challenged me. Challenge me, Sam. What do you see here? What do you see that's not aligned? Find somebody. Because it's really easy to self-justify when we look at our own budget. Oh, well, I spend that much on that because of this. It makes sense. But when you verbalize it and you tell a trusted, safe, wise, shrewd, godly person, they can see through it and they can help us. I encourage you, not everybody, don't just publish it on Facebook. A few trusted, godly, shrewd people who will ask you hard questions because they love you and they are about your eternal happiness. Look at your finances regularly with others. <laughs> I know this is radical. I know this is radical. This is so un-American. This is like one of the most un-American things I could ever say. But, but I would suggest that it would be one of the greatest things we could do for our souls. It's uncomfortable, embarrassing, and even sometimes shameful, and it should be shameful if we've been doing shameful things with our money. But that, sh- that revealing is what will bring the freedom and the joy and the peace and the forgiveness and cleansing. Number four, give your first fruits. I'm not going to bang on this too hard, but listen, we don't believe the Bible teaches the same concept of tithing in the New Covenant community, but we do see the principle as a way to tutor and grow your heart in giving, and we as elders at All People's Church have encouraged all members to give 8% to the church, to give to God through the church, and then set aside 2% so you're looking to be generous with the heart to say, God, all of it is yours. This I give is a reminder that none of it is mine. So every time I write a check to All People's Church, just know I give to the church too. Okay? Every time I give, I say, God, this is a reminder that nothing is mine. None of it is mine. It's all yours. And then increasingly, as I've grown in giving and grown in sacrificing and grow in shrewdness, I give more than that. I've been giving more since I was younger. And I, and I hope God gives us the grace to be generous. And I just want to remember a, a story I heard about a year or two ago. I'm going to call her out. I even mentioned this. But I remember in... In the winter, when there were some issues with, oh, she just walked in. In the <laughs> she looks mortified. In the winter, when uh, when there was a bunch of issues with snow, one of our former members had a huge car issue, and it cost a lot of money. And this and this individual didn't have the money for it at that moment. And Elise was just basically said, I don't know. I heard it through Pastor Daniel, but Elise was like, basically, I got you. I got a budget for this. She had it set aside, looking for people to be generous to. And here's, here's someone who's not like super rich and has all this. 
is because she was setting it aside, intentionally looking for the day so she can be generous. And I just, I've said this so many times before in membership meetings, what would it be like if we had an entire community, everyone intentionally setting aside money, looking for opportunities to bless others? Like we would have no need, no lack among us, like Acts 2 talks about. No lack. If you've fallen off of that wagon, I just invite you to get back on that. So let me, let me end with this. <clears throat> there is not a single person here that is not, <laughs> dang it, I went over time again. There's not a single person here that is as devoted to God as we'd like to be. I know that's me. I'm feeling so much conviction over this passage this week. But let me be clear. When we consider our devotion to God, we must zoom back and look at the, both parties. There is no devotion you can offer that isn't infinitely more returned by God. This is not a situation where God is passively looking up there, tapping his feet, waiting for us to be devotion, but a God who takes on flesh, takes on poverty, takes on suffering, comes into our world to die for us, to, to live for us, to suffer for us, because he's 100% devoted to you. God is 100% devoted to you. It's not he'll be devoted to you when you're devoted to him. No, he's already devoted to you. Just like we love because he first loved us, he's already passionately devoted to you. And that as a result of receiving that immense love and devotion and commitment, then we can give that back to him. It's the ultimate situation. Have you ever seen a couple where, you, you know, one is, one is like super into the other one? Like they're so into him. They're like, oh my goodness, you're so into this person. And the other person, you're like, I think, I think they're kind of not into it. This is the ultimate situation like that with us and God. God is like super leaning in, super into it, super committed. And we're like, oh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I mean, the Egypt was better, you know. This is not something us working up. He already worked for us. This is a response to his devotion to us, a response to his sacrifice to us. So let me be clear. If you're in here and you feel this conviction and you feel, I don't love God as I ought to because he deserves your supreme love. When I say supreme, I mean number one over all. And second is not even close. And if that's you, he has made every attempt possible to make it possible for you to receive his love and devotion. So much that he lived, he died, he suffered, he was resurrected for you so that you can be scrubbed clean. No matter what your past or your present is, all of it washed clean as if you've never done it. That's how powerful his forgiveness is. And that's how committed he is to you, to making all things new in your life and through you. And so if that's you and you want forgiveness of sins, you want to have peace and reconciliation with God, please talk to a member today and say, I want that. We want to pray with you. We want to walk with you through that journey. It's not a one-moment thing. It's a daily thing. We want you to receive the forgiveness and freedom in Jesus. And if you are walking with Jesus and you're saying, Sam, I'm like you. I've been struggling with my devotion, especially with finances. I've been struggling with my heart. It's been dis divided and, 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 and I've been devoted to other lovers. He's wait, waiting. He already knows. He's already stretching out and saying, I've been waiting for you to come home, daughter. I've been waiting come home, son. I know you're distracted. I know you're divided. Come home to me. I've been devoted and waiting this whole time for you. So come with your shame. Come with your, your, your rebellion, and he'll receive you. But you first must confess it, reject your own lordship, your own, own mastery, and, and take up the role of a steward again. So church, Jesus is inviting us to hand over our control of finances, our fears of the future, if retirement will be enough, if we'll handle another recession, our anxieties about our bills and debts, and trust him with everything. 
And then when we let go of our death grip over our finances and welcome him to be Lord, the rightful place he deserves, we will increasingly enter into his joy, his peace, and his provision. Will you give up control afresh today to him, a good master, a better master than you? He's better, and he wants good for you, and he knows the best for you is only in submission to him. Let's pray. Father, you got to help me learn how to speak quicker because this is 47 minutes and I went over time by seven. But, but Lord, I, I trust that in this time, your word was spoken. And if in any place I was not faithful to your word, would you correct me? I want to be faithful. But Lord, everything that was true, let it deeply penetrate our hearts. In this room is many different Layers of hearts, hearts that are super soft before you, and some hearts that are very hardened right now because of a lot of different reasons. And I pray for every heart to be able to receive afresh your love, your, your word, your conviction, and that we would be a church, we would be a community that has open hands with our finances and possessions, that they would be truly yours and we would just be stewards, that we would relinquish the control that we have slowly have taken over and said it's ours we earned it we work for it and say no it's all yours whatever you want with it lord we're yours not only our finances but our very lives give it to you give us the grace to do that it's so hard sometimes sometimes the death grip of greed and fear can be so hard on our hearts we're so afraid to trust you because we've been hurt at times in the past we, we, we struggle with trusting you again, Lord, but we, we pray your spirit would help our hearts trust you again, trust you with the future, trust you with the present, trust you with the bills, trust you with the job. We just say that, right? We trust you. And maybe you need to say that right now, even out loud, as a, as a sign of faith to the Lord. Say, I trust you. I trust you. I trust you with my retirement. I trust you with who's going to take care of my parents as they're getting old. I trust you with those bills. I trust you with that debt. I trust you with my fears. I trust you with... The, 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 the job applications. I trust you, God. Because you're a good God, worthy of trust. You're a good master. You own everything. 